to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. All scriptures God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, furnished for every good work. Let's open the scriptures this morning to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Before we begin, we need to make sure that we are prepared for worship. We have seen in our study of John in the last chapter that we are to worship God by means of doctrine and the filling of the Holy Spirit. I was thinking about that passage the other day, and I don't think I brought out the point that in that particular verse, spirit is translated with a small s, and some people want to take that as the human spirit. Now, I didn't think about this at the time, but why is it that that's not the human spirit? Because Jesus is saying that something new is going to happen. People had been regenerated throughout the Old Testament and received a human spirit throughout the Old Testament. So it is clear that that's not referring to the human spirit because that had always been the case in human history. So therefore, if Jesus is talking about something new, it must be referring to a new dynamic that would come to pass in the church age, and that would be by the Holy Spirit. And we recover the, <clears throat> excuse me, we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit when we use 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that means all we do is admit or acknowledge our sins to God. We don't have to say, God, please forgive me. God has said, if you admit your sins, I'll forgive you. So we don't have to beg or ask God for forgiveness. All that is simply adding something to Scripture. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll begin our study of John 5. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to worship you by means of your word, that your word is indeed breathed out by you, and it was exhaled by you and inhaled by the writers of scriptures, and then they wrote it down, and you guaranteed that what they wrote was free from error. And so we can rely upon this as absolute truth. Jesus said that we are sanctified by truth and that your word is truth. The psalmist wrote, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. So, Father, we are taking time from our lives because we know that you are due ultimate honor. You are worthy of all praise and worship. And the highest form of worship is to study your word, to have our thinking transformed, that we might live and think in such a way that you are glorified. And now, Father, towards that end, we spend this time and dedicate it to you through the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. We are in John chapter 5. Now, in studying the Gospel of John, or any Gospel, you must realize they're not biographies. A biography in the modern sense starts with 
in some cases even before the time of the, the birth of the individual who you're, you're reading about, to sometimes it talks about the times in which they lived and all the other factors, goes back to their lineage, their parents, their grandparents, and a lot of other factors. And then you read their life from birth to death in chronological order. That's a biography. The Gospels aren't biographies. They're Gospels. A Gospel is a, a tract. It is a missile. It is a particular form of writing designed to communicate a point, a point about Jesus Christ being the good news, the answer to man's problem of salvation. This is specifically true in the case of the Apostle John. He says that these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. In the fourth gospel, there are many things that are not stated in the other three gospels. In those three Gospels, there are many similarities. They are almost synonymous. That's why they are called the synoptic Gospels, because they are parallel in many cases. And they give us a lot of information about the life of Christ. It's not contained in the Gospel of John. So in order to understand some of the dynamics that we're going to hit in chapter 5, which is a totally new division within the uh, Gospel, we must stop and just review what we've learned about Christ so far. So far, in probably January of the first year, we'll put this year one, Jesus Christ is baptized by John the Baptist. And that's when God the Father, God the Father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus Christ at that baptism. Then he went out and spent 40 days in the wilderness where he was tested by Satan, then he returned, and at that point we had the four days in the life of John the Baptist back in uh, John chapter 1. Then he returns north into Galilee and has the first sign at Cana, and we see this inclusio between the first sign and the second sign of Cana covers from the beginning of chapter 2 down through the end of chapter 4. Now, that first sign in Cana took place probably in early March of that same year. This is all year one, and uh, the, the first year of his public ministry. In March of that year, he has that first sign. Then he went to Jerusalem for the Passover. So that's the first mention of a Passover. John mentions three Passovers. If you have three Passovers, that's only two years. Now, Jesus' ministry lasted longer than that. This is all background for understanding this first verse. He, he goes down to Jerusalem for the Passover, and then he spends most of the summer and the fall teaching in Judea. From, he leaves Judea late fall, maybe even into the winter in January, and he heads north, goes through Samaria, has the conversation with the woman at the well. There is a revival in Sychar, And then Jesus goes on up to Nazareth where there is an encounter there. He's rejected by his people. And that happens in January. Uh, And then there's this, put a two here, one here, first year. The second year begins. This is, he goes on after the rejection in Cana, I mean in, in Nazareth. Then he went to Cana where there is the second sign. And that is the miracle where he healed the nobleman's son. Adjust the overhead. Bring that down a little bit. Okay. First year is completed. 
Now we come to the, and the second year begins with the episode of the healing of the nobleman's son. But the scriptures are pretty silent. At least the Gospel of John is silent about what happens during the remainder of that year. This is the time that the other Gospels cover the great Galilean ministry of our Lord. And there are many uh, teachings there. Somewhere after his return to Cana, the disciples each go to their own homes, go back to their own businesses, and it will not be for another year before there is the official call of the disciples to join him. I'm just trying to give you some pegs to hang on because most people, most of the time, we just don't understand what's going on in the life of Christ, what, those, what, what the outline is. There's the initial calling of, of six in John 1, but that's not the official calling. They travel with him throughout this part of the year. The first year, at the end of the first year, they go back to their businesses. He has a Galilean ministry. Most of the time, he's just out there by himself teaching. Sometimes some of the disciples are with him, and it's not till almost the beginning of the third year that you have the official call. Now, this Galilean ministry, he has a number of miracles. There's some teaching, some different things are going on. Sometime in that second year, because John is going to mention other Passovers. John mentions a Passover in chapter 2, verse 13. He mentions a Passover in 6.4. And he mentions the Passover uh, at the time of the crucifixion in 11.55. So this is the first, this is the third, this is the fourth. That's how you get three years of public ministry in the life of Christ. What about the second one? Well, there is some controversy when you come to John 5, uh, some discussion as to whether or not this feast mentioned in 5.1 is the Passover. I think not. The reason I think not is because every time it's a Passover, John says Jesus went to Jerusalem for a Passover. This time he just says for a feast. Now, there were, it could be the Feast of Tabernacles, which would come late in the year, would be towards December. It could have been earlier in the year, the Feast of Trumpets. It could have been even earlier at the Feast of Pentecost. There were several different feasts. We don't know. It's not important, according to the God, the Holy Spirit, for us to know. But it probably wasn't Passover. It's later in this year. So there's something of silence from January to either summer, early summer, or early fall when this event transpires. In between, Jesus has been, has been conducting himself in a teaching ministry. He has been healing and he has been uh, performing various signs and wonders. And a number of these have taken place on the Sabbath. It's not, these Sabbath healings are not mentioned or Sabbath events are not mentioned in John, but they are recorded in the other Gospels. First of all, he was uh, challenged by the Pharisees because he was picking grain on the Sabbath in Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. Secondly, he healed a withered hand in Mark 3, 1 through 5. He cured a woman who had been crippled for 18 years on the Sabbath in Luke 13, verses 10 through 17. And then he healed a man with dropsy on the Sabbath in Luke 14, 1 through 6. Let me give those to you again. Four events that occurred on the Sabbath. 
picking grain, Mark 2, 23 to 28, healing a withered hand, Mark 3, 1 through 5, curing a woman who had been crippled for 18 years, Luke 13, 10 through 17, and healing a man with dropsy. This had occurred during the period from the end of chapter 4 down through 5.1. There's this gap in the record in John, but Jesus has been out there violating the Pharisaical law codes on the Sabbath for several months. Things will come, but that's up in Galilee. Now Jesus heads right into the heart of the Pharisaical domain in Jerusalem for a feast day, and is at this point that Jesus is going to bring things to a focal point, the challenge to legalism. And he is going to make his public proclamation of who he is as the Messiah in this context. So this Sunday we'll look at the first 16 verses or so, and here we'll see the event that gives rise to the the great Son of God discourse in the rest of the chapter. Now, it may take us a while to get through the rest of the chapter. This is one of those chapters that are not uh, the more famous chapters in Scripture, but it is loaded with significant doctrine about the person of Jesus Christ. Few chapters in the Bible, with the exception of maybe Colossians 1 or Philippians 2, have as much to say about Christology, that is, the study of Jesus Christ, than this chapter. It is crucial. There are some fascinating Things in the chapter. But it begins with an event, a healing event, that takes place at the pool of Bethesda. So as we get started here in this chapter, let's just read through the first three verses to get our context. After these things, this is just a general phrase for time has gone by. Time has passed. There was a feast of the Jews. Doesn't tell us which one. Could be Pentecost, could be trumpets, could be tabernacles. It's not relevant for us to know, but it's sometime later in the year. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, the reason it always says Jesus went up to Jerusalem, when we say going up somewhere, we would talk about going up to Maine or going down to Virginia. Because we use up and down as it's related to north and south. North is up, south is down. But in the Jewish thinking and in their idiom, Up and down are related to elevation. So Jerusalem is up high. So you always went up to Jerusalem no matter where you were. If you were up north and you were going south, you still went up to Jerusalem because you were going up in elevation. If you were going from Jerusalem to uh, Samaria, then you went down to Samaria even though you're headed north. So you have to understand the Jewish idiom. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. And then there is a bracket. If you're using a New American Standard, there should be a bracket from the last clause in verse 3 down through the end of verse 4. And this tells you, if you look in your margin perhaps, or a subscript note, that this section is not included in most of the older and the best manuscripts. It was probably added later. 
so it's included in the King James Version, but most Bibles don't even include it anymore. If, if at all, they put it out in the margin. And that's a good decision. It was probably something that a scribe wrote in the margin related to a superstitious belief at the time. And after it was written in the margin, the next person who copied that text included it within the text. That's what's called a scribal error, and there are a number of those that, that you, when you study textual criticism, you learn how to decide which, how these errors crept into Scripture or how to handle the di- discrepancies. Even if it is part of the original text, the original text, it does not uh, authorize this belief. It's simply a statement of the superstition of the time, and the Bible is not saying this is what happened. It is simply saying this is what people believed to have taken place. Now, this pool that is mentioned here is inside the Sheep Gate, but it is just north of the temple area in Jerusalem. If we were to have a map of Jerusalem, here would be the outer wall as it came down. On the north there is the Sheep Gate. And the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as he is approaching a, a time of uh, a feast time where the, the lambs would be slaughtered, he enters the sheep gate, heads down to the temple, and just north of the temple area, archaeologists have discovered the remains of this pool of Bethesda. It is there were in actuality two different pools there, and as most uh, of these pools, it was fed by an underground spring, probably a hot spring. That's why it would have a connotation of healing. And whenever this would bubble up, whenever the hot gases were released, the water would churn a little bit. And so there grew this superstition, grew up this superstition that, that an angel was, was churning the water and that the first, first uh, person in would get healed. And uh, beyond that, there were also five colonnades surrounding the spring, and this was like, like a hospital. One, two, three, four, five. Like a hospital. And all around this, this pool were these pathetic sights of the blind, the lame, and the withered. Verse 3 says, In these lay a multitude. So there may have been a uh, hundred or two hundred different people lying around on their mats and their carpets, waiting for some kind of healing. A pathetic sight. They're described as the sick, and this is the word asthenes in the Greek. These words are very instructive, asthenes. Now, just as we have the one word for healing is the word sozo, which is the word normally translated salvation, but literally means deliverance from something. Context tells us what. If it's talking about uh, eternal condemnation, then of course we're talking about justification. If it's talking about uh, the spiritual life, then sozo refers to salvation in the midst of tests, as we've seen in James 1, 20 and 21 in our study of James. But sozo is defined by context. What are you delivered from? The same thing is true about osthenates. It's a compound word. The, the alpha privative is uh, like our un, un, and it means not. Sthenase has to do with 
strength. So it, it would be literally not, not, I can't even write this morning, not strong or weak. Weakness. Weakness from what? Weakness of what kind? If the context is physical, then we're talking about a physical weakness or sickness. If the context is talking about the spiritual life, then it would refer to weak spiritually or perhaps a status of carnality. Jesus said that the, the, um, fle- uh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's not talking about physical sickness there. It's talking about a spiritual condition, a spiritual weakness. So, we have to look at the context for asthenes. It's just a general word. And here, obviously, it means those who are physically weak. And then we have a parenthetical phrase describing the kinds of sickness that are present. In the English, you have blind, lame, and withered, but we need to retranslate that to get a little better concept. The first is tuflos. Looks like this in the Greek, tuflos, or P-H-L-O-S, and that literally means blind. The second group are those that are kolos. C-H-O-L-O-S. And that is those who are lame or unable to walk. They are crippled in some sense and unable to move around. And then the third group are those that are zeros. This would be X-E-R-O-S. And this literally means to be dried up. Sometimes it's used of a situation out in the desert where something is dried up. So it comes, came to be used to refer to those who were paralyzed and their muscles had atrophied and had withered up. So it is talking about three categories of people here, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now, these, this situation portrays for us the spiritual impotence of the human race. This whole situation is to demonstrate the grace of God and the gracious provision of God. There's a multitude here. I want you to picture this. Jesus has come into town, and He has gone to the temple perhaps already that day, and He has walked around and He has seen the Pharisees in all of their legalistic wranglings arguing the fine points of the law, just how to do this and how to do that, and how they can acquire the, the glory of God or the praise of God through all of their human works. And then he leaves and he heads about 100 yards, 200 yards north of the temple scene to this, to really almost the dregs of humanity. You can just imagine what it must have been like in the ancient world with all of their lack of knowledge of medicine and hygiene and everything else that goes with us around this pool and 100, 150, 200 people laid out in all of their misery wailing as, as the uh, Jews would wail, expressing their emotions, not uh, suffering in silence at all, but expressing all of their misery around this pool, waiting for the waters to bubble. And Jesus walks in, and he begins to look around, and he sees all of these people in their horrible, horrible condition. And he has compassion for all of them. But Jesus' mission is not to heal 
or alleviate the suffering of humanity. If it was, Jesus would have healed everyone there that particular morning. But he doesn't do that. Jesus walks in and he looks around and he picks what was probably the most pathetic case in the entire place. And that is this one man who has been there for 38 years, unable to move. He is desperately believing this myth that an angel is going to come and stir up the waters. And if he could just get into that pool first, and he's paralyzed, if he could just get there first, then he would be able to walk again. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever had any dealings with somebody who has suffered from any kind of debilitating problem, whether it's a stroke, whether it's paralysis, or anything like that, but people can become awfully desperate in in situations of illness and try any kind of so-called healing technique in order to alleviate their suffering and their condition. And this man is just trying everything, and he's been there for 38 years. We don't know if he was there continually or if there were just this just took place during feast times. We don't know if he just lived there or it was just during the times of the feast that people would go there and wait for the waters to churn, what the condition was. But he had been doing this for years, and he was unable to have anybody take him to the water. And Jesus looks around and he sees this one man, this most pathetic of all the cases, and Jesus chooses him to be the object of his miracle that day. Now, the point here is that this man is not a believer. Point number one. He is not seeking healing from Jesus. Point number two. Point number three. He does not even become a believer as far as the text is concerned and as far as we know as a result of this. This is solely an expression of God's grace. Jesus Christ initiates. That's the point of grace. Jesus, God the Father has initiated grace in human history. It's not up to man. It's up to God to initiate. And it's on the basis of who and what God is and not on the basis of who and what we are. So this whole situation is a training aid for us in the grace of God. Now this scene at the pool of Bethesda pictures the spiritual impotence of the human race. All mankind is spiritually blind. They are born spiritually blind. The soulish man, according to 1 Corinthians 2.14, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned and he is not even able to do so. So every human being is born spiritually blind. Further, they are born spiritually lame. They cannot walk with God or have any relationship with God because they are indeed spiritually dead. And third, they are spiritually paralyzed, spiritually withered. They are unable to move spiritually. So this is a portrayal of the spiritual condition of the entire human race and the need the need for a grace initiative to provide salvation. Verse 3 ends with the phrase, Waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool. This expresses the uh, mythological or superstition of the time. The angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. 
And a certain man was there who had been there 38 years in his sickness. Now, another thing we need to remember is the Jewish emphasis on cleansing. We talked about this back in John chapter 2 at the, at the, feast of, of the, uh, the wedding feast. Why was it that there were all these stone pots full of water? Because of the Jewish emphasis on physical cleansing. They, they, they were obsessed with cleansing. If you go back and read through Leviticus and read through the Mosaic Law, over and again it talks about all the things that man can do that makes him unclean. Therefore, you can't go into the temple. So they were, they were obsessed with the water as a sign of cleansing and being spiritually clean. And so we have the picture of, of water as a source of cleansing in John chapter 2. Jesus talks about water and the Spirit as a metaphor for regeneration in John chapter 3 and the cleansing of sin. In John chapter 4, he offers the woman at the well. Uh, this water will spring up into eternal life. So we continue to see this, this metaphor of water throughout these chapters. And once again, this, it comes up here. And this man has this Jewish belief that the water will cleanse him and give him uh, physical healing. Now, when Jesus saw him there, Jesus walks over to him. Now, there's hundreds of people here. There's people moving in and out. There's traffic. There's conversation. There's the weeping and wailing of people expressing their misery and their suffering and everything else. And nobody's paying attention to this one man. The disciples aren't with him. And he walks in and he just walks around and he sees this man and he who he's going to focus on as the object of his healing that day. Pure grace initiative. Nothing in that man deserves this healing. He's not positive. He's not a believer. Jesus just picks him out to make a point. And he walks over to the man and he steps down, probably leans over. Nobody else could hear this. Jesus isn't making a big pronouncement. When Jesus walks in, the crowd doesn't get silent and say, Jesus is here. Let's see what he's going to do. You know, that's not what's happening. He's, he's not seen. He just walks in and walks over to the man and says, Do you want to get well? Just conversationally. Leans over. Nobody hears the question. Just the man. And the man says, Sir, nobody's going to put me in the water. I have no man to put me in the pool when the water's stirred up. But while I am coming, and you can just picture him, he's paralyzed pulling himself along the ground to try to get there, and everybody else hobbling along on their crutches and jumping in before him. What a pathetic, pathetic sight. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus says to him, Arise, pick up your pallet, and walk. Get up, go. Don't you wish you had a camera? What must the expression on that guy's face have been? Because he knew from the self-authenticating command of Jesus Christ that he could. There's no doubt in his mind because the next verse says, Immediately the man became well and took up his pallet and began to walk. When Jesus said, Arise, the man felt a surge of energy through his body that rejuvenated all of his nerve endings, all of his muscles. I don't know if you've ever been around somebody who's paralyzed, 
But my mother had polio in 1952. In July, around July the 20th of 1952, she contracted all three kinds of polio. In the next two weeks, she came down with hepatitis, encephalitis, a kidney infection, and bladder infection, and she was seven months pregnant. And I was born two months early, a week later. You you can leave now. And when I was a kid, I prayed all the time. You know, the, the Bible says that you have to have the faith of a child. And I prayed all the time that God would heal her. Never did. And I remember when I was very young, she still would, she went through therapy for a long time, went down to Warm Springs in Georgia for about a year uh, until she came home. And I remember watching her as a young child get up on these contraptions, these leg braces and crutches, and try to walk up and down the hall just to somehow give movement to those limbs and to those muscles because they just atrophy. And, and you look at somebody's muscles after 20, what, how long is it, 38 years, I mean, his legs just withered up. They're just hardly bone. They're just flat muscles. The nerve endings have dried up. Uh, nothing's going to work anymore. And yet, when Jesus performs this miracle, everything just shoots through him, and it's instantaneous. He gets up and he walks. No physical therapy. It's not a process. He doesn't wobble. He just gets up like you or I get up every day and moves out. Now, that is dramatic. I want you to notice that the healing here is instantaneous, it's immediate, and it's dramatic. It shoots through this guy and he immediately gets up and goes. And it deals with a constitutional problem, a physical defect that is obvious to one and all. It's not like these healings we hear about today that are not obvious to everyone, that take place in secret, that when the person comes forward in the healing service and they're going to get healed, they wobble and they stutter and they crawl and all of these other things. There's nothing instantaneous. And six months later they say, I was healed, but it took a while. It's nothing like that. I mean, this is dramatic and it is impressive. And then Jesus just turns and disappears into the crowd. Think about what's happening back at the pool. This guy gets up. He's been there for 38 years. Everybody knows who he is. And he's picking up his pallet. And he's walking out. Wait a minute. Now it gets quiet. People, what, what's happening with this guy? Everybody's looking. Everybody's paying attention. What happened? How, do you, how can you do this? Who healed you? What, what was said? Everybody was focused elsewhere when it happened. And now they see the results And word begins to spread, and we're told something at the end of chapter 9. The Holy Spirit just slips it into the text, and it's the interpretive key to the entire chapter. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. It's sort of added as if it's an afterthought. But this is the point. Jesus is bringing this whole issue of pharisaical legalism to a head. And it is a public confrontation. Before we get into that... We need to stop for just a minute and review the whole doctrine of healing. Healing is one of those subjects that people have many questions about and has led to great confusion and false concepts of healing have been uh, taught and promoted through uh, many different uh, tele-evangelists and other operations. And so we need to stop a minute and review the doctrine of healing, which we covered at the end of last Sunday morning, 
and then we, we're going to add a number of principles. So if I'm going to move rather rapidly through the ones I covered last week, so we'll have time for the ones I haven't covered. Doctrine of healing point one. Key words. There are three Greek words that are important in discussing healing. The first is the word that therapeuo, from which we get our word therapeutic. T-H-E-R-A-P-E-U-O. And that means to serve, to heal, to cure. In, the, in general Greek, it had the idea of to serve, but nowhere is it used that way in the Bible. It's always used in the New Testament in the sense of curing and healing. It's the primary word that's used. The second word is hiaomai. H-I-A-O-M-A-I. And that means to heal, to cure. The root meaning is to be made whole. So it can even be used of a person who is spiritually weak, that they are made whole spiritually. It doesn't have to mean physical. Therapeuo is physical. Sozo. S-O-Z-O means to deliver. That's the root meaning. It also means to save, and you have to look at the context. Now, the reason I emphasize that is because one passage, we're not going to take the time. We don't have the time to exegete it. If you want to know the exegesis, go back and listen to tape 3 or tape 4 in the prayer series, where I go through this in detail. James chapter 5, that's the passage everybody wants to go to for healing. If anyone is sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him and anoint him with oil. And that passage has absolutely nothing to do with physical sickness or physical illness. It is one of the most grossly mistranslated passages in the entire New Testament. It has zero to do. And the reason I can say that is because the words for sickness, asthenes, are used with synonyms in the passage which clearly indicate weariness, not physical sickness. And the word for, for healing is hiaomai and sozo, not therapeuo. And the whole context of James is to challenge believers to persevere when you're going through difficult times spiritually, persevere in in application of doctrine. And when it comes to James 5, sickness has nothing to do with the context of the entire epistle. And the issue there is if you can't persevere, if you are physically weak, I mean spiritually weak, then the solution is through prayer and the prayer of spiritually mature believers. That's the thrust there, and I'm not going to say anything more about James 5, but you have to look at the context. Point number two, in the doctrine of healing, are the causes for sickness. Ultimately, the cause of all physical illness is the fall of Adam. Because we live in a fallen world, there are defects in the uh, physical realm. Second cause is biological. There are constitutional defects. There are genetic malfunction problems. There are problems with cellular breakdown, viruses, bacteria. All of these are a result of the fall of Adam and the impact of sin on the physical domain. Third, there are psychosomatic illnesses. This is the impact of the mental attitude upon the body which may uh, cause actual sickness just because the conversion of adversity to stress causes a breakdown of the immune system which causes physical symptoms and susceptibility to biological disease. 
Fourth, there are spiritual causes. Uh, there's divine discipline, the law of volitional responsibility, or divine punitive action, and this works through biological causes. You don't have just a spiritual sickness out there. You can have biological ca- causes that are a result of spiritual problems. And fifth, there are demonic causes, and these two work through biological agents. So if there's a de- demonic cause for your illness, the solution is not to go out and do battle with the demons or to pray that God would restrain the demon. The issue is to deal with sin in your life, number one, through confession, and number two, move forward in spiritual growth, relying upon God to do the battle in the spiritual realm. The battle is the Lord's. That is the primary principle in all spiritual warfare. The battle is the Lord's. The Bible never, ever, ever authorizes offensive action against Satan. The Bible only authorizes the believer to take a defensive position against Satan by standing firm in the Word of God and in the provision of Christ and to let Christ deal with whatever is going on in the spiritual realm. So that covers the causes for sickness. Point number three, a summary of the reasons for suffering. Just a brief summary, we suffer because we live in a fallen world. We suffer because we make bad decisions. We suffer because we're associated with people who make bad decisions. We suffer for blessing and spiritual advancement under the doctrine of evaluation testing in James 1, 2 through 4. We suffer because we're in the angelic conflict and in the cosmic system. And there may even be times of personal demonic attack, although we do not know that because we cannot see into the demonic realm. We have to get that point across. People who say, well, a demon attacked me, what's your basis for knowing that? Empiricism. Well, how do you know you know all the data to make that adequate judgment? You don't. We cannot see in the, into the spiritual realm. That was Jesus' whole point in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. You have to go with what the Scripture says. The Scripture says it doesn't matter whether the source is a demon or a physical problem or your own sinfulness. The solution is always the same. Confess your sin, move forward through application of doctrine. It's never, you don't have, the the idea that you have to understand the source of the problem comes out of psychotherapy, folks. Psychology says you have to understand where it comes from so you can handle the solution. The Bible says you don't need to know where, why, or where it came from. You just need to know the solution, which is the battle is the Lord's, exclusive dependence upon God through salvation, faith alone in Christ alone, sanctification, learn the Word of God and apply it in your life under the filling of the Holy Spirit, period. You don't have to go out there and figure out what the source is. If you do, you're going to really get involved in demonism and really mess up your life. Point number four. Jesus' healing during the time of the Incarnation was to establish His credentials as the Messiah. Matthew 8.16 compared with Isaiah 53.4. Matthew 8.16 compared with Isaiah 53.4 and 5. Isaiah 35, 4 through 6, Jeremiah 8:22, and Jeremiah 33:6. All of these passages indicate that God is going that, that the messianic rule is going to be characterized by healing. Isaiah 35:4, say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The point is that when the Messiah came, there would be physical healing. Point number five. 
Apostolic healing followed the same pattern. It was designed to establish the credentials of the apostles during the pre-canon era when the gospel was initially being proclaimed until the canon was complete. Signs and wonders were specifically said to be the, the, the calling cards of the apostles. 2 Corinthians 12.12 12, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So all the healing related in Acts is related to the authentication of the apostolic message. Peter and John's healing of the lame man in Acts chapter 3 and 4 and all that's involved with that. Point number six. The spiritual gift of healing operated during the apostolic period, but like any spiritual gift, it was under the control of the person who had the gift. You can, just like if you have the gift of evangelist, it's up to your volition whether or not you will express the gospel to an unbeliever. So, the, so it's the same is true of somebody with the gift of healing. It was up to their volition whether or not they would exercise it. Someone with the gift of healing, just as Jesus went in and healed the one man at the pool of Bethesda, someone with the gift of healing could go down to Bacchus Hospital, walk into the cancer ward, and heal somebody just like that and walk out. Whether or not they were a believer is not the issue. Uh, faith healing says you have to be a believer, you have to have faith, and yet as we shall see, that is not the issue in the Scriptures. Point number seven. Healing in the New Testament was always related to serious constitutional defects such as blindness, lameness, paralysis. These are visible, horrible deformities which were easily witnessed by all and difficult to fake. Okay. Point number eight. We didn't cover this last time. Point number eight. There are limited periods of miraculous activity in the Bible. Limited periods of, of uh, miraculous activity in the Bible. People get the idea that there were miracles happening all the time. But that's not true. They were very rare. First of all, here's a timeline. From creation to, we'll just go to the end of the apostolic period. Here's the cross. Right here. Back here you have a period from about 1445 to 1405 under the ministry of Moses. The miracle surrounding the uh, deliverance of the Jews in the Exodus and various miracles performed by Moses in the wilderness are covered in that 40 year period. Then you have the miracles that took place under Joshua uh, from about 1405 B.C. with the death of Moses to the death of Joshua in 1370. All these dates are approximate. That's why you sometimes see a little C-A, circa, put in front of a date. That means it's approximate. Then you had uh, a few miracles take place during the period of the judges, for, but these were usually related to a military defeat. For example, Gideon's 300 defeated the Midianites. That was miraculous. Also, Samson was miraculous in, in some of the things that Samson did. But that, they, those miracles were sporadic and they were related to military victory. And this would be the period of the judges and this would be uh, Gideon's dates are about 1180 to 1140. And then Samson's dates would be approximately 1110 uh, to 1090 B.C. Now, then you skip about a hundred years and there's a miracle related to, the pro to an unnamed prophet of Judah uh, giving a message.
It's in about 920 B.C. An unnamed prophet of Judah and Jeroboam. Then you have another outbreak of miracles under the ministry of Elijah and Elisha from 860 to 853 for Elijah and for Elisha, 853 to 845. Then there are a few miracles related to Isaiah's ministry, 740 to 680 B.C., and then no more miracles from 680 B.C. to the Messiah. So for almost 700 years, there's no miracles. Now, how many people were healed? How many miracles took place during this period? Very, very few. It's not normal. It's very rare. And each miracle was designed to emphasize a particular point about theology, about God's dealings with the nation of Israel and to authenticate prophetic authority in the Old Testament. After Jesus came, during the three years of His ministry, there were many miracles performed by Jesus. There were the 70, also the 70 that were sent out. And then during the period of about 32 A.D. up to 52 A.D., there were the miracles associated with the apostles in Acts. Most of those miracles that are recorded occurred in the early years. They faded out and became fewer and fewer as time went by. The last recorded miracle in the New Testament occurs in Acts chapter 28. Paul was sick when he went to the Galatians. He had one of his... uh, One of the men in his entourage, one of his students by the name of Epaphroditus, almost died from his illness. Paul did not heal him. Timothy had physical illness problems, and Paul did not heal him. So just because you were ill or sick or had some deformity does not mean that you were healed. The healings that took place were few and far between, and they were designed to validate the authority of the apostles. Point number nine, there's a warning, 2 Thessalonians 2.9, that Satan produces signs and false wonders, and people can be deceived by that. So the warning in 1 Thessalonians 2.9 is related to the Antichrist, that he will deceive the world with all power and signs and false wonders. Point number ten, in the early church, God healed immediately. This was not, I did not talk about this last week. The early church God healed immediately through believers. Now, what does that term immediate mean? It means there's somebody between God and the person being healed. He works through somebody. In the New Testament, He gives somebody the gift of healing, and His healing is mediated through a human agent. Once the New Testament is over, God heals immediately without the human agent. I'm not saying God does not heal today. God answers prayer. God heals. God, you pray for someone who's sick, and there are times when God will answer that prayer positively and restore that person to health. That is not normal. The Bible does not lead us to think it is normal, and we should not expect it. But we should pray for it, and we should believe that God can do it. I am always angered when I hear people who are into the healing movement say, Oh, well, you're just another dispensationalist who doesn't ever pray for anybody to be healed. Well, I've never yet been to a prayer meeting in any church I've been involved with when we didn't pray that God would heal somebody or give them strength going through some kind of disease or give wisdom to the doctors so that they can recover. It's not a lack of compassion or a lack of faith in God. 
It's that we haven't bought into the human viewpoint, metaphysical, new thought mentality ideas of the modern Pentecostal movement. And so we're not going to get caught up expecting God to do something He hasn't promised to do. We believe He can do it, and we're going to pray for it, but we do not believe that God has obligated Himself to heal everybody, either now or even when Jesus Christ was on the earth. So we believe God heals today in answer to prayer, but it is only due to His sovereign will. Point number 11. God's sovereign will intervenes in only rare cases of healing for His specific purposes. If you want to read a book, or a couple of books, that have some really good insights on suffering and why God doesn't heal, look at the writings of Johnny Erickson. She, had, she was a young girl back in the 70s who took a, a dive in a shallow pool and she was an expert swimmer and she broke her neck and was paralyzed and she went through years of, she's a quadriplegic and you know the Lord has given her some tremendous spiritual insights uh, related to this whole thing of healing and she went through all the quack stuff and had some good teachers get with her and give her some good doctrine. But those are some good books, and I recommend those if you are interested in that subject. Okay, point number 12, faith in miracles. If you look at the Bible, at the miracles in the New Testament, you can classify them two ways. There are those where the faith, in the, the faith of the recipient was not present at the time of healing. This means that the person who was healed did not have faith at all, and wasn't even seeking healing at the time. You have the nobleman's son in John 4, 46-54. Afterwards, he became a believer, but he wasn't when he came seeking healing for his son. The son had no faith at all. He became a believer later. Secondly, there's the cripple at Bethesda, the one we just read about in John 5, 1-9. He is not a believer and, to our knowledge, never became a believer. Third, the demon-possessed man in Capernaum was, he, was, uh, had the demon cast out on the Sabbath. Mark 1, 23-28, he was not a believer. D, the par- or, or 4, the paralyzed man that uh, healed, his friends brought him to Jesus. His friends had faith, he did not. Matthew 9, 2-8, Mark 2, 3-12, and Luke 5, 18-26. 5, the centurion's servant. The centurion had faith. The servant wasn't present. Matthew 8, 5 to 13. Luke 7, 1 through 10. Uh, six, the blind and mute man. Matthew 12, 22. Luke 11, 14. Seven, the Gadarene demoniacs did not have faith. Matthew 8, 28 to 34. Mark 5, 1 through 20. And Luke 8, 26 through 39. Eight, the deaf, mute, demon-possessed man in Matthew 9, 32 through 33 did not have faith. Um, Nine, feeding the 5,000. The 5,000 did not exercise faith in order to get fed. In Matthew 14, 14 to 21, Mark 6, 34 to 44, Luke 9, 12 through 17, and John 6, 5 through 13. I know I'm going through this fast, but I want you to get the thrust of all of this. It's overwhelming evidence. Uh, Next, the feeding of the 4,000. In Matthew 15, 29 to 31, and Mark 8, 1 through 9. 11, healing the Canaanite woman's daughter. 
The mother had faith, but the daughter did not. Matthew 15, 21-28. Mark 7, 24-30. The daughter wasn't even present. 12. The deaf mute in Decapolis. Mark 7, 31-37. 13. The demon-possessed boy in Matthew 17, 14-18. What number was that? 13, 14. He restored Malchus's ear. That was the temple slave who Peter cut his ear off. Well, Jesus just picked the ear up and put it back on. Malchus didn't have any faith. Never was a believer to our knowledge. Luke 22, 49-51 and John 18, 10. And then last, two blind men, Matthew 9, 27-31. None of these people who were healed had faith or expressed faith at the time of their healing. So faith is not, it was not and never was presented as a precondition in the Bible to have healing. Miracles where faith was present. The leper that was healed in Matthew 8, 2 through 4. Mark 1, 40 to 45, Luke 5, 12 through 16. The, the, uh, the man whose hand was crippled was healed in Matthew 12, 9 through 13. He had faith. Peter had faith when he walked on the water in Matthew 14, 24 to 33. Fourth, the man who was born blind in John 9, 1 through 7 believed Jesus. Five, uh, Bartimaeus, the blind Bartimaeus, had his sight restored in Matthew 20, 29 through 34. He had faith. The woman with the hemorrhage, this is six. The woman with the hemorrhage in Matthew 9, 20 to 22. The ten lepers in Luke 17, 11 through 19. Eight, the first miraculous catch of fish in Luke 5, 1 through 11. And nine, the second miraculous catch of fish in John 21, 1 through 11. There are nine miracles where faith was present, and what was it, 14 or 15, where faith was not present. What's the point? Can you conclude from that that you have to have faith in order to be healed? No, faith was not a precondition in the New Testament. So the conclusion is that miracles and healing were never normative in the spiritual life in either Old Testament or New Testament. In fact, if you get caught up looking for healing, then you have been distracted from God's plan for your life. You've been distracted from the issues of the spiritual life, and you're going to end up making yourself miserable in a frantic search for happiness, thinking that healing is the key to happiness. And that's going to destroy your spiritual life. Miracles were never the issue. Healing was never the issue in the, in the spiritual life in the New Testament. They were simply designed to give authentication to the message of the apostles and to establish Jesus' messianic credentials. Point number 13. I don't want to get caught up in this just to give you an idea of where it comes from. In the 19th century, you had a healing movement related to the holiness theology that was putting an emphasis on healing. And then also in the mid-19th century, you had something called New Thought Metaphysics, that man can control his health by his mental attitude. The most famous disciple of New New Thought Metaphysics was Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy. Uh, she, of course, went out with Christian science, and they don't have, go to doctors or anything. And then another was a man named E.W. Kenyon. E.W. Kenyon is the major thinker behind the whole faith healing, word of faith movement that is so popular 
among charismatic Pentecostals today. He influenced Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, or Roberts. All of them, can, you can trace their writings all the way back to E.W. Kenyon at the turn of the century. They did not get this out of the Bible. They just tried to use the Bible to support their teaching. So these have come together in what is called the Word of Faith movement today, or prosperity doctrine, name it and claim it, health and wealth. It goes by a number of different kinds of names. And then last week I also mentioned a number of the famous faith healers who have either died or they have had cancer or heart problems. And instead of going to one another, and they're all friends, they all have each other come to their churches and have these healing revivals. Uh, you don't find John Osteen, when he was alive, when he had heart problems and kidney problems, going to his good friend Oral Roberts to get healed. No. He went to the doctor. And he went through dialysis. And he took medication. And he did everything necessary that the doctors told him was necessary. And his wife did too when she had liver cancer about 18 years ago. And she was, uh, by the grace of God, went into remission. But not because of... Uh, her husband laid his hands on her, but because she went to the doctor and went through chemotherapy. And this is true for a number of them. The conclusion is, don't get caught up in the healing movement. That has a distraction from the spiritual life. So in John 5, back to our passage, that man is made whole and it is on the Sabbath. What's the response? Verse 10. Therefore, the Jews were saying to him who was cured. Now the word's gotten out to the Jewish leaders. Everybody's heard this. The guy has headed to the temple in order to give his sacrifice to God, his his thanksgiving offering to God for his healing. And the rabbis find out about it, and the Pharisees find out about it, and they just go ballistic. Notice, they don't care about the fact that this guy has been sick for 38 years and has been a cripple. They don't even mention the healing. They are just distraught over the fact that their rules have been broken and this occurred on the Sabbath. This is like somebody who walks out of church or somebody who gets saved and then they go into the bar and they have a beer or they go somewhere and they light up a cigarette and some Christian goes ballistic and says, well, how can you be saved? And gets all upset because of something they've broken some taboo or some legalistic rule. Verse 10, Therefore the Jews were saying to him who was cured, It is a Sabbath. It's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. See, the the Pharisees had developed a a lengthy series of law codes in order to apply the Sabbath law. Now, the Sabbath law from the Mosaic law simply prohibited work on the Sabbath. Now, doesn't this sound familiar? And then the people came along and they said, Well, what do you mean by work? Let's define work. What do you mean by is? No. uh, What do you mean by work? Let's define what work is. You see, it's that legalistic mentality that tries to find every circumlocution and and thread every eye of the legalistic needle in order to walk the edge. Now, Sabbath began at sunset on Friday and ended and started with three trumpet blasts from the temple and synagogue to let everybody know from now on you can't work. And it ended with sunset on Saturday. So the Jewish day went from sunset to sunset. All food has to be prepared before the Sabbath. All dishes have to be washed before the Sabbath. And all lights lit. Lights turn, you can't turn off a light. You can't 
light a candle. You can't do anything. Everything has to be done before that trumpet blows. The Mosaic Law simply uh, prohibited work on the Sabbath, but the rabbis developed a system for defining work. It started off with a system of 39 different works that were designated father works. If you broke those rules, then you were to be punished by stoning, rather serious offense. For example, and then from the father works, they would develop descendant works. For example, a father work would prohibit plowing on the Sabbath. Well, what does plowing include? So a descendant work would prohibit digging. So if you can't plow, you can't dig. Another father work would prohibit carrying a burden. That went so far as to prohibiting wearing false teeth on the Sabbath. That's a burden. Uh, Reaping was a father work. You couldn't reap. Descendant works would include plucking the head of, uh, of wheat, just plucking that off of a wheat stalk, or even pulling out a gray hair from one's head was considered uh, reaping. So they got into all these little details from the Sabbath. And I brought a copy of the Mishnah, the second volume, the Moed, which includes the Tractate Shabbat, which is all the rules and regulations related to the Sabbath, just to give you a little flavor of what was going on in the legalistic wranglings of the day. For example, Mishnah 5 and Sabbat 3, 5 says, If one removed a boiler, he must not put cold water into it to make it hot. But some may put in it, put in it or into a cup to make it lukewarm. If a pot or dish may be taken off while boiling, one may not put spices into it, but he may put it into a tureen or plate. So if it just happened to be there and it was already hot, then you could, you could take it off, but you couldn't do anything to, to make it hot. If you, um, and then it says, he may put into it anything except what, was in, except what has in it vinegar or fish brine. That would be pickling it, and that would be a work to pickle it. Let's look at some others. If anyone wrote with liquids, that's like ink, or with fruit juice, or in a road dust, or in writer sand, or with anything that does not last, he is exempt. If you wrote with ink that would last, that was a work. But if it was invisible ink or disappearing ink, it wouldn't last, so that was okay. If you wrote with the back of the hand, or with his foot, or with his mouth, or with his elbow, or if you wrote a letter alongside a written letter, you could write, you could add a letter, but you couldn't write two letters. A little one, another rule later on said, um, you could write one letter, but you couldn't write two letters, only one at a time. If you wrote two letters, you were writing a word, and that was communication, and so that would be wrong. And then uh, one of the more interesting ones. Pickling brine must not be prepared on the Sabbath, but one may make salt water and dip your bread into it or cooked food, but they had a proportion of salt. If you got too much in there, it would be pickling brine, and that would violate the Sabbath. And if you had aching teeth, you could not suck vinegar through them. That was a remedy for a toothache. So you couldn't suck vinegar through them, but you may take it in in a usual way, and if you're healed, you're healed. It had to be sort of accidental. You couldn't try to do it. Uh, Lots of odd little rules and regulations. And the one that applies most to this situation was from Tractate 10, or Sabbath 10, 
A living person on a bed is exempt, even for the bed, because the bed is secondary. But a corpse on a couch, he is culpable. In other words, you could, you could, <laughs> then to make sure whether or not the guy was alive or dead before you picked up the bed and carried it. And you weren't allowed to pick up anything and carry it from a public place to a private place or from a private place to a public place. And that was the violation that this man engaged in in John chapter 5. So he picked up his pallet and walked, and he violated the Sabbath law right there. And so they're not concerned that he hadn't been able to walk for 38 years. They're concerned with his Sabbath violation, and all they want to know is who told you to do this. And he didn't know. He had no idea. He says, uh, uh, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your pallet and walk? But he who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. And later, Jesus, again, the initiative of grace, seeks him out and says, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse may befall you. So apparently, his illness was somehow caused by carnality in his life at some point. And we do not know what that was, but it does tell us that illness can be a result of carnality uh, from our own sinful choices. Now, this is going to create a head-to-head confrontation with the Jews, which we will look at in verse 16, starting next Sunday morning, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we've had to look at your word and how clear it is on the issues of, of healing, what you have done for us, and all of this is a result of your grace. Your grace, which means that we do nothing to earn or deserve your grace, you have done everything for us, especially and primarily in the realm of salvation. For by grace, we have been saved through faith. We do not do anything to earn or deserve that. You initiated grace in eternity past, and we receive that simply by accepting the free gift of Jesus Christ as our Savior. If there is anyone here this morning who is not sure of their eternal destiny, is not sure of their salvation, this is their opportunity to make that certain. All they have to do is put their trust in Jesus Christ alone. They just have to say to you, silently, forming words and thought alone, Father, I believe Jesus died for me. You don't have to be baptized. You don't have to do good works. You don't have to join a church. You don't have to do any religious thing. You simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that we would be encouraged by the things that we have studied throughout this week, and that you would challenge us with them, that we may apply them in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.